Welcome. Welcome to the final day of the January series 2018. My name is Christy Potter and I'm the director of the series. Can you believe it? The time has gone by so quickly and here we are on the final day. It's been a great 15 days and I know many of you came day after day to enjoy all the presentations. We've been inspired and challenged and we've learned together and I hope that it's been a blessing to you all. As we close out the 2018 season, I just want to say a special thanks once again to our series partners, Baker Publishing, and to Doug and Maria DeVos, to our community partners, Meyer Incorporated and Howard Miller, our daily underwriters, our creative partners, and to those of you who sent in individual gifts to help make the January series a free gift to all. We are all very grateful. Thanks also to our technical team and our events team for all their work behind the scenes during the, this past few weeks and to the hosts at our 52 remote sites. And on this last day, I'd like to give a special welcome to our remaining four of our 52 remote webcast sites, Seattle, Washington, San Jose, California, Stillwater, Oklahoma, and Big Rapids, Michigan. And now, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for a great month of learning, for the opportunity to join together in this place and in locations across the country and around the world to hear from gifted individuals. We ask now that you will be with our guest, John Swinton, as he speaks to us. Open our ears and our hearts to hear what you would have us hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now Jewel Maidenblick, president of Calvin Theological Seminary, is going to introduce our guest. Thanks. Good afternoon. Today's January series presentation also incorporates the Staub Lecture Series. The Staub Lecture Series is sponsored annually by Calvin College and Calvin Theological Seminary in honor of Dr. Henry Staub, who served so well as a professor at both institutions. Dr. Staub taught from 1939 until 1975, except for the years when he served as a lieutenant in the United States Navy during World War II. The Staub Lecture is funded by the Henry J. Staub Endowment, and we again express our appreciation to the family of Dr. Staub for their support and encouragement for these lectures that, recognize, that recognizes Dr. Staub's contribution to the church and the kingdom of God and invites continued conversation in the fields of ethics, apologetics, and philosophical theology. I'm privileged to note that our speaker today, Dr. John Swinton, is a person who brings insight and wisdom to such key questions as, who am I when I've forgotten who I am? And what does it mean to love God and be loved by God when I've forgotten who God is? Dr. Swinton is Professor of Practical Theology and Pastoral Care at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, and Founding Director of the Center for Spirituality, Health, and Disability at Aberdeen. Dr. Swinton is also an ordained minister of the Church of Scotland who for more than a decade worked as a registered nurse he also worked for a number of years as a hospital and community chaplain. He is a person who provides rich and deep perspectives rather than platitudes for the joys and sorrows of life and in death. Dr. Swinton's books include Resurrecting the Person, Disability in the Christian Tradition, Living Well and Dying Faithfully, and Raging with Compassion. His most recent book, Becoming Friends of Time, Disability, Timefulness, and Gentle Discipleship, won the Award of Merit for Theology and Ethics in the Christian Today Book Awards for 2017. And John will also be presenting at the Calvin Symposium on Worship this week. John is married with five children and lives in Aberdeen. As is customary, our speaker will be available to greet the audience in the West Lobby of the Covenant Fine Arts Center following the presentation where his books will be for sale. Kelvin College and Calvin Theological Seminary are grateful for the Staub Lecture Series and the Peter C. and Emma Jean Cook Foundation for underwriting today's presentation. Please welcome with me Dr. John Swinton. Well, good afternoon. That's fine, friendly people, good. The, uh, first of all, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here and to be able to, to talk to you about things which I, I hope you'll find interesting, but more than that, I hope we'll give you insight into the nature of humanness, how we are together, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. 
So one of the things about dementia is that if you look at the uh, statistics and the surveys that people uh, have done in relation to how people think about dementia, people are more afraid of dementia than they are of cancer. And one of the reasons for that is because it's this strange idea, and I say strange because, uh, uh, as we'll see why it's strange, a strange idea that somehow we lose ourselves if we lose our memory. And I want us to rethink that whole idea of who we are, what it means to remember something, and in the end, what it means to live with dementia, and perhaps even to live well with dementia. And in order to do that, we need to go to some interesting places and to rethink or reimagine something that seems to be quite obvious. One of the things that uh, theologians like to do is to complexify things. In other words, to make simple things complicated. Right. Uh, and that's what we get paid for, which is even better, so it's great. <laughs> it's a funny old world, really. But to complexify something is to take the day-to-dayness, the obviousness of a phenomenon, and then just to make it complicated, to ask different sets of questions. And if you ask different sets of questions, you begin to see things differently. And when you begin to see things differently, your imagination is expanded. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about how you come to have an imagination. Because your imagination is not the same as your fantasy life. Your imagination is the sets of ideas, methods, ways of seeing the world that help us to imagine, to see and look out in the world and imagine what it is that we see. It's impossible, for example, to cross the road without having a certain kind of imagination. But our imagination is taught to us. And so the ideas and the concepts come from culture, come from the media, come from our families, come from science, come from all sorts of different places. So we have fixed limits, plausibility structures, as Peter Berger puts it, fixed limits on what we think is plausible and what we think is not plausible, and how, 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 how we can formulate and understand what is imaginable. I want us to expand our imagination beyond the obvious in relation to dementia and open up our ideas to some challenges, and open up our imaginations to some new concepts and ideas. And when we do that, then that gives us a much broader and a much richer range of possibilities for positive ways of being together in the midst of the experience of dementia. So let's begin with the uh, simple question, what's dementia? At one level, it seems quite obvious, dementia is brain damage, it's lots of different causes, but basically there's some kind of damage to your brain that causes you to have cognitive dysfunction or memory issues and so on and so forth. So the standard definition would be, we all kind of intuitively think we know what it is. But I want to challenge that. I want to think beyond the obvious in relation to dementia and see what happens. Within the area of uh, philosophy, there's a strand called phenomenology. The phenomenology is really, really interesting because what the phenomenologists try to do is to look at something and see something the way that it is as opposed to the way that we've been taught that something is. So we put to one side our standard assumptions, our theories, our ideas, and try to look at the thing in itself. Look at the lived experience of people or the lived experience of whatever phenomenon you're looking at before we begin to think about it and theorize it. And one of the interesting things within phenomenology is the way in which they formulate the body. So for the phenomenologist, the body is not just a material thing. It has a multiple of different dimensions, two of which can be captured by the, uh, the idea of the material body and the lived body. So the material body is the physical body. This beautiful thing that stands before you is the material body. I have my opinion, I can stick with it. The, uh, so it's your physical body as it is in the world. And so if you're thinking about something like dementia, you may be thinking about physical body, deterioration to the brain, and so on, so those things that come from, from that kind of physical uh, dimension to the body. But the phenomenologists also point out that there's a second way in which we can understand the body. And we can understand the body as the lived body. 
what it means to live when that body moves through the world, when it experiences the world, when it has relationships, when it has failures, when it has ups and when it's down, the lived experience of that body as it encounters other bodies within society. Now, one of the dangers for something like dementia is that all of the focus, and most of the research focus, if you think about it, is on the material body. But it's in the lived experience, the lived body, that we find something different. We find sadness, yes, but we find joy, we find possibility, we find hope, we find oppression, we find justice. So I want us to think about the uh, dementia in the context of the lived body. So the biomedical story focuses on the material body, but the spiritual, the theological, is very much tied in with the lived body. Not to the exclusion of the material body, Certainly, it brings a different story, and it's a different story that I want us to be thinking about. So, dementia and the lived body. First thing to notice is that dementia is a socially and culturally devalued condition. One of the things that you notice, and it's fascinating to look at the literature, is that as soon as you have a diagnosis of dementia, your friends tend to disappear. Not because of the dementia, but because of the presuppositions about what dementia means. So it's highly stigmatized, highly uh, devalued. Now think about the issue of value. How do you make something valuable? How does something become valuable? Because it can't become valuable just because it's valuable. You know, one of the fascinating things about value is it's always a gift. So this wedding ring, for example, it's valuable to me. It's not worth a lot of money, but it's invaluable to me because I put value on it, and therefore I, I live it in my life with a valuable thing in my finger because I've ascribed value to it. The problem for people with dementia is this term dementia automatically devalues them. And so who within society is going to give their value back? I want you to hold that in the back of your mind. So nestling in the lived experience of dementia is the issue or the experience of stigma. Now think about what stigma is and think about what stigma does. Stigma, Irving Goffman, the sociologist, says, comes from the idea, it comes from the a slave trade, where a slave would be bought by a slave master and would be branded. And then their personhood, everything they are, is reduced to the size of that brand. So they are no longer a person, they're simply a mark, a chattel, something that belongs to somebody beyond yourself. You cease to have your humanness. And that's exactly how stigma works. With almost any mental health label, such as schizophrenia, for example, or bipolar disorder, they shrink people to the size of their diagnosis. And certainly dementia does that. It shrinks people to the size of the diagnosis. And the very word dementia is highly problematic because it basically means without mind. So as soon as you have dementia, you become dementia, and the assumption is you're without mind and you cease to be who you were before. Now, can you imagine living your life within a culture that assumes that to be the case? Now, one of the problems for people living with dementia is the nature of our culture. Stephen Post, who's a very uh, interesting ethicist, uh, wrote a book some years ago called The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's. And in that, he talked about an idea which he described as hypercognition. He says, Western cultures are hypercognitive. In other words, they tend to prioritize, prioritize intellect and reason above other significant human experiences, such as community, friendship, and relationships, and love. And so in a culture within which it's assumed implicitly or explicitly that the essence of what it means to be a human being is your intellect and reason, and if you have a condition which seems to challenge that, not only are you perceived as ill, the temptation is to perceive you as losing something of your humanness. And so to live with dementia in Western hypercognitive cultures has a very specific meaning. 
And I mean, it may not be the same in different culture, but within our culture, a very specific meaning and a very specific impact of that meaning on our understanding of the humanness of the person before us. So if you think about the kind of language that people very often use in relation to dementia, you know, she's not the person she used to be. I'd rather remember the way that he was. Now, if he or she is not the person that they used to be, then who do you think you're dealing with? Who do you think is in front of you? And why would you think that because people forget things, they cease to be the people that they used to be? So Bob DeMarco, who lived with the dementia, he says, I'm saddened when I hear these words. This is not the person I knew. These words objectify the person living with Alzheimer's. When you objectify a person, you dehumanize them. Once dehumanized, the person becomes a villain. So the way we talk about dementia is profoundly important. Because your words create worlds. And when you think about it, when you talk, you create the nature of the world you think you're addressing. And I wonder how many worlds have we created today through the types of language that we have decided to use about various things. So talking about dementia in the right way is profoundly important. So speaking about dementia. So take that commonly uh, expressed assumption that somehow he or she is not the person that he used to be, or she used to be. Why do we think that way? What's going on with that? Well, if we take this, this um, definition of personhood from John Locke, we can begin to see what the problems are. John Locke's a well-known philosopher. I'm sure you many, many of you know that. He says, to be a person is to be a, a thinking, intelligent being that has reason and reflection and can consider itself as itself the same thinking thing in different times and places. So to be a person, you have to be able to remember things in a quite particular way. You have to be able to bring a memory from the past, recall it, bring it into the present, and then use that information to uh, project a possible future. If you can't do that, Locke says, you're no longer the person you used to be. And that's precisely the language that we often use. She's no longer the person she used to be. So you have a kind of an implicit Lockean philosophy that's embedded within our culture that we don't even notice. But the important thing here is the nature of the self that this creates is an autobiographical self. So as long as you can tell your own story, you're who you always used to be. But if you can no longer tell your own story, give your autobiography, then you're no longer the person that you were before. So there's a profound and very complicated and very difficult philosophy that runs under the simplicity of what we seem to think is an appropriate way of talking about dementia. But Stephen Sabat, who's a, a very interesting uh, American psychologist, he wrote a book called The uh, Alzheimer's Tangled Web, I think it was called. And in it, he did a series of qualitative research uh, projects looking at people living with dementia at various stages along their dementia journey. So some people who are relatively recently diagnosed and some people who were uh, quite advanced in their journey. And one of the, the, the things he discovered was that no matter how uh, advanced a person was in their dementia journey, there was always communication. People are always talking about something. They may substitute words for the right word, but they're always engaging with the world. They're always there, so to speak. And so he wants to challenge the idea, or came to the, state, the position where he wanted to challenge the idea uh, of the autobiographical self. And as an alternative, he offers what he describes as a threefold self. And it's worth thinking about this. He says, self one, self two, and self three. So self one is the experiencing self. So as long as you are in the world experiencing, feeling things, Referring to yourself, even if it's not through language, just being aware of the world, he says, you're a person. Nothing can take that away from you. As long as you're conscious, he, he can argue, but you're, you're a person. Self two, he says, begins to get a little more complicated. So self two relates to your material body, your height, your weight, so on, the color of your eyes, and so on and so forth. 
but also in self too, you begin to develop social roles. So you may become a Christian or you become a teacher um, uh, or you may become whatever you are. Uh, uh, the key thing about self too is that you can negotiate yourself. So if somebody tells you a negative story or a wrong story about you and your identity, you can tell a counter story, say, no, that's not right. This is the, in fact, this is the case. And so you've got a complex, ongoing conversation within which you can tell counter stories against people who, who really want to construct you in a, a, a negative or a bad way. And one of the identities that people can begin to develop in, in self too is the identity of somebody who uh, lives with dementia. Now in self too, you can negotiate even that. So if you lose your keys, people will just say, oh, it's just a dementia. And you can say, no, it's not my dementia because I've always done this or whatever way it is. So you have some degree of negotiating power. Self three, however, is a different beast. So in self three, uh, who you are is a gift from your community. Right, so it's like what I, t I talked about value. To, there's self free to hold you in your identity. Other people need to recognize you. Other people need to sustain you. Other people need to call you by your name in that sense. If people no longer recognize you, it's very difficult for you to hold on because nobody listens to your story anymore. Because by the time you get self free, people just don't listen anymore. It's everything to do with the dementia, everything to do with the pathology, everything to do with brain damage, and your story is lost. And it's worse than that, your story is reconstructed by other people uh, <coughs> according to the assumptions that they have about what dementia actually is. So self free is a gift that comes from your community. So there is a sense in which people with dementia can lose their selves but that's simply because the community loses them. And so when the community forgets about people with dementia, it's very difficult for them to sustain themselves. And that takes us into a very, very different way of thinking about who we are. So rather than thinking about ourselves as individuals who uh, write our own stories, who create our own narratives, and who always project our own hopes and expectations into the future, what Sabat is putting, pushing towards is that kind of African Ubuntu theology idea that I am because we are. That somehow I'm sustained because all of us are together. I become who I am as you and I come together. So we come and stay who we are because other people remember us. And that raises a fascinating issue, suggestion, that actually our memory is not simply something that's confined to our heads. You know, I teach all the time, uh, and when I'm looking at students, they're typing away on their phones or on their computers or on their iPads or whatever it is they're doing, or they're writing notes. In other words, their memory is external. If I want to remember anything about myself when I was younger, I have to go and ask my mum, because I have no idea what it was like when I was younger. I have to go ask my mum, my mum tells me, and she could be not telling me the truth, of course, like, <laughs> but, uh, but let's not talk about my mother. <laughs> not in this therapy session, anyway. The, and so she, she, she holds my memory for me. And so, yes, there is a certain degree of, of, of holding on to things in my mind, but a lot of my memory has to do with my community and trust in my community to remember me well. I have a, a, a friend who is currently creating a memory box. She doesn't have dementia, but she is creating this memory box, and in that she's got lots of things, including the type of music that she wants. And uh, the reason for that is that she doesn't want to get to a stage where uh, she has dementia and she's in a care home, uh, and people force her to listen to Scottish country dance music. <laughs> so, in there she's got Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and all sorts of things. <laughs> so, this might be the time for you all just to start thinking about that. Like. But the serious point is, who holds your memory well? You know, I've got five kids, right? I trust four of them to, to look after them, to remember them well, <laughs> maybe. But it's true, who holds your memory well? When you can no longer remember certain things for yourself, who will hold your memory? Who will hold your story well? Who will remember you well? And that, of course, takes us 
right into the realm of, of theology and beginning to think now about what is it that actually does make us who we are? How, what is it that actually does help us to answer that question, who am I? And of course, as Christians, we realize that who we are, our identity, our sense of self, has nothing really to do with what we remember or even what we have done. We are who we are, Paul says, in Christ. In Christ, we discover who we are. And Paul says quite clearly that in Colossians that, you know, even that is, is a mystery. We're hidden in Christ. So the only person who really knows who we are at any stage in our life is, is, is God. So we are held in who we are, not in our own memories, but in the memories of God. So let me give you a story that, that allows you straight what I'm trying to say. The, uh, my colleague, Margaret uh, Hutchison, who's a, a nurse in Adelaide in Australia, gave me this story many years ago, but it, 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 it makes the point I want to, to draw out quite well. And she talks about uh, her experience with a woman who was a very beautiful, very friendly woman who suddenly had a change in behavior. So she became really anxious, really concerned, and she began to march up and down what was then called the dementia ward, repeating the same word over and over and over and over again. And so the ward team got together and began to think, well, how can we do, deal with this? Should we medicate her? Should we restrain her? Should we... Uh, lock the ward, and all of these kind of standard questions, uh, clinical questions were asked. But eventually, one nurse who was a Christian got alongside this woman and began to walk with her. And she began to walk, and she began to listen to her. And eventually, she began to kind of lock into what was going on. Because what was happening was that the word that the woman was repeating over and over again was God. So she was going, God, 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 God. And eventually the, the nurse worked it out. And she said to her, are you afraid that you're going to forget God? And the woman stopped, stopped dead. And she looked her in the eyes and said, yes. Now all her life she'd been a Christian. All her life she had built her understanding of who she was in relation to her understanding of who God is. And she was terrified that she was going to lose that because without that she didn't know what life would be like. And the nurse said to her, well, it may well be that you forget God, but God will never forget you. And in that instant, she was calm. She found her peace. She's found her shalom. In a sense, she found her healing. And so I think for Christians, the place that we begin to think about memory is not necessarily what goes on within our heads or even what goes on within our communities. It's what goes on within the life and the love and the memory of God. But even if we move beyond that, Memory is a strange thing. I don't know how you understand memory, but I want us just to think a little differently about the nature of memory. And the reason that's hyphened there, to remember something, is to bring something back that has been dismembered. So I want to remember uh, memory in the sense of bringing back certain aspects of memory that have been either overlooked or dismembered. So think about it in this way. The standard account of memory runs, we've already seen, more or less like this. Memory is assumed, <coughs> assumed to be recall. So we bring something from the back of our minds into the fourth, uh, which part of the mind is that? The middle of your mind, conscious mind, and think about the future. So recall is what we assume memory to be. So if somebody experiences dementia, we say, well, they can no longer recall things, so therefore they've lost their memory. So to forget is to be unable to bring the past into the present and recognize it as a past. So in this sense, you can lose your memory, and it's clear that people very often do. But recall memory is only one dimension of memory. I want us to think about the memory of our bodies. 
Because sometimes we forget that actually our bodies remember things, not just our minds, the whole of us remember things. Marcel Proust recounts the way that the taste of a little piece of madeleine shoots him back to his childhood. Beginning on the tongue, the madeleine makes its way up to become a nostalgic memory, an abstraction, and part of an identity. Proust can thus speak of how involuntary memory becomes a voluntary one, which implies that a felt memory, something embodied, can become a conscious cognitive memory. When he smells madeleine, he's reminded of things within his body that he completely unable to articulate through recall memory. And a good example of that runs in relation to music. Those of us who have spent some time with people with uh, advanced dementia have always been struck by the way in which, you know, I remember when I was a chaplain, I would go into a ward, and it was wards in these days, uh, and you'd set up your worship stuff and you'd start to play some music, and people who, you know, for much of the week, don't really engage, suddenly begin to engage. When they hear that music, something changes, and they sing, and they smile, and they respond. Now, you could just say, well, that's just like hard-wired, hard, uh, experience that people have just, over time, the music's been quite interesting, and they're having a nice piece of entertainment. But to do that would be to mistake what's going on. Oliver Sacks, in a very interesting book called Musicology, looks at Alzheimer's and uh, dementia. And he points out that the plasticity of the brain means that when the brain has certain forms of trauma, it has a tendency to reconfigure in order to compensate for the trauma. Now, one of the things that uh, we don't always think about in relation to dementia is sometimes, depending on what kind of dementia it is, sometimes the memory is not actually lost. It's actually still there. But what is lost is the ability to get to it because of neurological damage that prevents you from getting round it into that. And so the brain in all its wisdom tries and constantly tries to find new pathways to get into that memory. What Sachs says is that music is a bridge that enables you to reconfigure and to get at that memory. So music, the path that processes music can oftentimes let you in to that space and let you access that memory. And of course, when you hear music, you don't just like hum along, you actually experience things. It reminds you of places and times of emotions, of loves, of loss, of a whole multitude of things. So when you see somebody uh, having that memory opened up through music, something very profound and very powerful is going on in the midst of that. But only for that moment. Because as soon as the music goes, that memory is no longer accessible. And one of the, 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 the real disciplines for those of us who want to be alongside people with dementia is to begin to learn the power of being in the moment. So to be with somebody in that moment, that moment that you know will pass, is a very beautiful gift. But it's also a very painful gift because you always want to live there, you want to remain there. But actually music opens that up and opens up the memories of our bodies. And the same thing you can see with the sacraments. <clears throat> When you begin to pray, you see people really begin to raise their hands or begin to bow their heads or begin to put their hands together in the gestures of prayer. And again, you can say, oh, isn't that a shame? Because they, they no longer are able to understand what they're doing. Now, people may not be able to cognate what they're doing, but their bodies know exactly what they're doing. Because over time, people have engaged in spiritual practices, and their bodies have been shaped and formed into the practices of, of Jesus, of looking for Jesus in that sense. And so what you see when somebody engages in these gestures of bodily practices is memory worked out in the present. Rather than thinking memory from the past, you're actually seeing it embodied in the present as it's worked out before you. And when you begin to think in these ways, you begin to see people differently. When you see people differently, you begin to respond differently. When you respond differently, there's a whole realm of hopefulness and possibility that emerges from that.
And of course, Thomas Fuchs, who's a, a, a neurologist amongst other things, he says, the memory of your body, when you see people doing that, it's intentional. It's about something. It's not just reflex action. It's about Jesus. It's about love. It's about worship. Paul puts it this way, if I can steal a passage from Corinthians for him. The only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our heart. Everyone can it uh, and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the results of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. It's carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. We're confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. So the next time we're ministering to people with advanced dementia and we notice these things, think about them as letters. Letters that Jesus has written. And over time, letters that the Spirit continues to read and continues to enjoy. And just coming to the end of what I, I want to, to say to you. All of that bring, brings us back to uh, a revised anthropology. A new way or a countercultural way of understanding what a human being is and what the nature of a human body is. If Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, if we are a hypercognitive culture, then people with dementia are in deep trouble. But if the bigger picture that I've tried to paint to you is correct, then not only does it open up spaces for us to love people with dementia more fully, it actually challenges us to, to think very clearly about the nature of body and soul. In Genesis 2, 7, we find this passage. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. So God takes earth, blows his spirit, his nephesh into it, and it becomes a living soul. Every breath that we take is a gift from God. St. Augustine describes human beings as terra animata, animated earth. So human beings are thus seen to be created from matter, but inspired, given breath, brought into living existence by the very breath of God. So when we look at our brothers and sisters, when you, when you look at the person beside you, you are looking at someone who is inspired by God, who's nephesh sustained. One of the problems that the, the, the psalmist had in the Psalms of Lament is he's terrified in case God takes away his spirit. If God takes away the nephesh, then <coughs> he is nothing. So we are our bodies as we are our souls. So when we lose an aspect of our bodies, we don't lose an aspect of our souls in that sense. We just simply reframe, rethink, reconfigure. So each human encounter is an occasion for worship, an opportunity to place our bodies in particular ways before God and for others. Worship in this sense is a repositioning of the brokenness of humanity. Human encounters is a celebration of the body and a meeting of the soul. And that anthropology opens up some fascinating space for rethinking the way that we engage with one another per se, but also particularly with people with dementia. Now, before I, I, I do finish, there is one aspect that we want to think about. It's not, I'm, I'm trying to give you a different way of thinking about dementia, but I'm not trying to take away from the fact that there is suffering and that there is loss and that there is brokenness. And one of the things I think we need to incorporate into our thinking and our practices is the practice of lament. You know, the lament psalms are absolutely fascinating. You know, some of the things that the psalmist says are outrageous. You know, smash the Babylonian babies' heads off the rocks, Lord. You know, we don't normally raise our hands and worship and sing these things. Like, <laughs> at least not in Scotland. <laughs> and yet, it's prayer. But one of the beautiful things about <clears throat> the majority of the lament psalms is you get three kind of phases in there. This big expression of sadness and brokenness. But then suddenly in the middle, something changes. Someone says, okay, I trust in your hesed. I trust in your never-ending love. And then he moves on to worship. 
And I think that in relation to how we think about and respond to people with dementia, lament needs to be a part of that. We need to express our anger if it's, as it's happening to you, if it's happening to those who love ones, and be honest with God about the difficulties of that. But always in the hope and the knowledge that God has said, God's unending love gives hope beyond hope, even in the midst of the most difficult situations. And then we can begin to maybe even worship together in light of that. So to sum up, what is dementia? Dementia is a meaningful human experience. It's a new set of stories that can be told about someone. It's an opportunity to challenge our assumptions that human beings are defined by memory and intellect. It's an opportunity to learn how to care for one another better. It's an opportunity to challenge our assumptions that human beings are defined by... I've said that, sorry. I'll try again. And finally, or penultimately, it's a place of deep loss and sadness. But finally, it's a neurological condition that affects memory, condition, behavior, and self-awareness. The material body is important, but perhaps, at least theologically, it shouldn't be the driver for the way that we think. One more thing, and I need you actually to do something here, so beware and be prepared. Uh, Joseph Pieper, in a, a lovely book called uh, Faith, Hope, and Love, gives a, a definition of love in relation to Thomas Aquinas' theology. And he says, love is to say to the other, it's good that you are here, and I'm glad that you exist. So this is what I need you to do. Turn to the person beside you and say, it's good that you are here, and I'm glad that you exist. And say it like you mean it. Okay, you need, to, uh, you need to stop loving one another now, please. <laughs> it's, 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 it's interesting, because as soon as you say that, you create community. As soon as you say that to your, to your brother or your sister, things change. But that expression, it's good that you are here and I'm glad that you exist, is the exact opposite of the way that society tends to think about dementia. So we need to think about that. As Christians, as theologians, we need to look at one another and say with our hearts, it's good that you're here and I'm glad that you exist. However, nobody said it to me. <laughs> no, it's too late now, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, now you've created a marginalized community, you'll understand <laughs> the lecture. <laughs> but that's your challenge, to love one another and to allow that understanding of love to transform the way that we see one another and in seeing one another differently begin to respond more faithfully to people even in the most difficult of circumstances. When we do that, the kingdom really does come. Thank you for listening. John, it's good that you're here, ah. and I'm glad you exist. <laughs> I've got one friend. What has happened? Here's a question from a student. Uh, I'm Karen Salpi from the English department. I'm glad you're all here. It's <coughs> good that you exist. And, uh, one of our students asks, when, someone has, when we're with someone who has dementia, how much should we focus on remembering their past versus thinking about their current reality? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a couple of things I would say to that. I, I think uh, helping people to remember certain things about the past is, is a profoundly helpful thing. And so the whole idea of, of reminiscence, reminiscence therapy, for example, is good because it helps you to find uh, objects, ideas, words that stimulate memories from the past, and that can be profoundly healing. It can also be very difficult because not everything that from your past is good. And if you're constantly bringing up negative things, thinking it's positive things, so if you bring up a picture, if you've got a picture of Uncle Albert and you, you know, somebody gets upset and you think, oh, isn't that sweet? And you, you're actually maybe uncovering more than you want to uncover. So it's a very difficult tension to, mm -hmm. to, to wrestle with, but that's a good thing. And listen to their the current reality. 
Uh, one of the things that is interesting, I, 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 as you know, I, I did some work on time and disability. Uh, and one of the things about God's time is that it's not linear, right? So you're never really backwards and forwards. It's always flat. And, and you know, he's always talking about going backwards and forwards. And we, so time, he just, so uh, God's time disrupts the time of the clock. I mean, one of the things in relation to people with dementia is that it's not so much that they lose their sense of time. So people might be talking in the present about things as if they are, uh, things in the past as if they're in the present. Mm -hmm. But that's because they lose the tensing of time. So they lose their ability to place past and present uh, in the kind of linear way that we think about it. And we tend to think, oh, isn't that awful? But actually, that's more close to the way that God understands time, perhaps, than uh, the way that we have constructed time over, over, over time. So respecting uh, the reality of the present moment, I think, is important. And engaging with the person of where they are is important. I mean, there's lots of different theories on that, but that would be my take on things. I'm, you know, early in the talk, you um, talked about the, the statement people make, he's, he's not the person he used to be. And, and I'm wondering if you see a person with dementia as, as being the same person in a different phase of life or as a kind of new person. I mean, it, it, it doesn't mean they have to be a non-person. Kind of, I'm not I, asking I think it's question. kind of both, really, because uh, at one level, you, you, you are at a different a stage in life, and you, you've come through things, and certain things that used to be important to you are no longer important to you, are no longer available to you. Uh, and so you're, you're, there's a real process of reconstruction in that sense. Uh, uh, and looking to the future is not something that people normally do, but there is something interesting, because if you come through that, if you can't remember certain things, and you've come to this particular point in your life, then maybe you're thinking differently, maybe some of the things that you used to like you really don't want anymore, and maybe things you want for your future mm -hmm. are things that it's very difficult to, uh, to, um, uh, for others to, to understand. So you have to keep that openness. We um, uh, did some work, uh, few years ago, developing a method and approach to access the spiritual needs of people with advanced dementia. And it's basically a narrative process where we create what we call a, a community, an intentional community uh, of people who love and care for this individual. And we sit down for an hour or two hours, and we, all of us, with person with dementia as well, all of us tell stories about the person's spirituality. And one of us takes notes and illustrates that with pictures and so on and so forth, pictures or poems or uh, symbols. And at the end of that, you've kind of got a verbal, uh, verbal you've got a visual uh, uh, picture of people's spirituality, and then you can go on and try to meet that. And that's very, that's very effective in, in, in some senses. But what it doesn't do is create new stories. So most people in that, in that group uh, have the old story and continue to do that, which is good. But it's how you access people's new stories, how you take the old story and then look to the future rather than always look to the past. That's the big challenge. But I, I think that, need, that requires an openness and a sensitivity to the possibility that things have changed, but actually there's still much to be said. Mm -hmm. um, so many good. I, I want to apologize for all the questions we never get to ask. We really need to have four hours a day, I think. I disagree. <laughs> um, but one of our students asks, how do you say and show you love them when they don't recognize you and thus don't trust you? Well, <laughs> the question of recognition is an interesting one because what you see very clearly in, in this kind of research that's done is that it's at that point where people can't recognize their friends or their family, that they have a, their social status changes. The people begin to think, well, this is the person moving into a, a radical new phase, and we can't really have anything to say to that because they can't even remember who we are. Um, but, uh, so, so that's associated. But in reality, everybody knows what it's to be with a loving person. And so it's very difficult, I think, if it, say, say you were my, my mum. No, that's, <laughs> that's, right. 
Younger sister. <laughs> well, okay, say you're my child. <laughs> and I, I, I've forgotten who you are, uh, and you find this very upsetting, but uh, uh, at the same time, I still quite like you. I might not like you. I still quite like you, um, but my relationship's different. For me, it doesn't make much difference because what I've got is somebody that's, that's nice and friend and, and kind. Mm -hmm. For you, it's devastating mm -hmm. because daddy here can't remember who you are. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's profoundly uh, disturbing, but not necessarily for me. Now, you, you have a, a different set of problems if people become aggressive or really don't seem to like you. Then you have the, the, and there are lots of ways in which you can engage with people and can deal with that. But the key, key would be that Sometimes you, you maybe just have to start that relationship in a different way mm -hmm. and begin to think, uh, you know, or recognize that people uh, warm to warm people. I do, I'm thinking as you talked about three, the, the threefold self, that, that that third part is really what, what others tell us we are, who others tell us we sure. are, right? And so you have the opportunity there to allow someone else to be their new or their current self, yeah. uh, and to accept that. But, that, the, but, the, but that, that's, there's a deep, deep negative in that, because your identity is, is shaped and formed by forces beyond yourself, and by uh, your assumptions about what dementia may be. So in Holland, for example, where they have a policy where people with dementia can be euthanized, you can go to your GP or equivalent, your family practitioner, I think they should, and you can ask to be euthanized, not because there's anything on diagnosis, not because there's anything necessarily wrong with it, but because of the fear of the future, mm -hmm. and because of the fear of the future for everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so you have that strange phenomenon, two, two things, strange phenomenon where people who are quite well disappear, and families have to work out, you know, where's Uncle Albert? And they have to grieve in a, in a way that's really unhelpful. Uh, doctors have to, there's some, there's some quite interesting research that being done on PTSD and amongst doctors who have engaged with euthanasia, because that's just not what doctors do. Then. So that, that pressure from, from the community to, to, to tell you who you are is positive if, you, if, it's, if it's loving, nurturing, and creates a space of belonging, but it can also be deeply negative. Mm -hmm. Another student asks, do you fear dementia more or less after having interacted with people with dementia? I don't fear dementia. I fear sometimes who would look after me if I had dementia. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, sure. I think what, yeah. one of the problems for many people is they don't necessarily trust the, uh, the people that we would be available to. So if, if my wife was looking after me, I'd be happy. Mm -hmm. She might not be happy. I'd be happy. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I trust her. I know exactly what it is. If I just ended up in a care home, uh, uh, in particular, a care home that maybe had an overemphasis on finances, then uh, I'd be, that would scare me. The, the condition doesn't scare me, but the uh, conditions for care make me nervous. Uh, we have a question asking, do you think modern medicine is causing life to be prolonged longer to cause, the cause or maybe exacerbate the dementia situation when God would not necessarily like us to suffer? There's, there are several questions coming in asking about whether, whether a cure for Alzheimer's is on the horizon and how you would react to that. Uh, well, I think that, that in reality, of course, it, that one of the reasons why people end up with certain forms of brain damage is because we live longer and because our bodies begin to wear out. And so, uh, you know, 50 years ago, you wouldn't have perhaps the same level of uh, dementia just because you don't. But, that, but that, that's just life from my point of view. I don't think that would be a reason for, uh, for anything other than just noticing that. Uh, there's no reason, I think, why you wouldn't look for a, a cure for dementia. You're never going to find it. You may find a cure for Alzheimer's, uh, but you, you're never going to find a cure for dementia, I, I suspect, unless you stop people growing, living beyond a certain age. Because it's just, you know, your, your arteries get thinner, they get clogged up, you're, you get damage to your brain. So, uh, cure is important, but I think the reality is it's going to be around for quite some time. So, and certainly from the perspective of church and theology, that's not the right question. The right question is how can we be with people mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in this current reality? Um, 
related to that, you talked in class this morning about medication as a spiritual practice, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about that here. Yes, I can. And, and you weren't talking about dementia at that point. You were talking no. about clinical depression, I believe. I was talking about, I was talk, I'll, yeah, I was talking about clinical de depression, and uh, I'll just tell the same, I'll tell you the same story. You can contextualize it in the, into dementia. So uh, the question that I was asked related to uh, the way in which sometimes religious communities or, or Christians have a tendency to blame depression on either lack of prayer or lack of faith or whatever it is. And, and I, I was talking a little bit about how obviously certain forms of depression are, are medical and so it's, it's, it's an inappropriate way to look at it. Um, and then I, I, I told the story, which I'll tell you just now, of um, a gentleman that I, I was speaking to recently. I'm doing a project just now on the lived experience of people living with severe mental health challenges, so schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and major depression. And I'm looking at uh, how Christians experience these uh, uh, mental health challenges and how their faith functions in the midst of that. And I was telling a story about one gentleman I talked to who has uh, double depression, which means that it's a relatively new diagnosis, but it means that even when he is kind of uh, well for him, his mood would be kind of around what many people would consider to be clinical depression. So he, he's always flat and low. Uh, and he talks about his spirituality as having three dimensions, or at least his depression as having three dimensions within which spirituality plays a particular role. So you get three levels of spirituality. The first level is, is when he's in this kind of, it's kind of sad state, but where he lives quite well. Uh, there he can pray he can articulate his faith, he can use the Psalms and lament, he can read the Scripture, and he finds it that very, very edifying. At the second level, he begins to lose some of that because he's not quite as, as organized, not quite as able to uh, think clearly. And, you know, Scripture can be very complicated because it's full of symptoms, and if you're really down and flat, uh, being able to imagine uh, symbols, uh, did I say symptoms, I meant symbols, uh, in that way, it's difficult. And then when he gets to the, the, the third level, there's nothing he can do. He says, it's just like being in a deep, dark pit. And I look up, and there's nothing there. I touch the walls. I can't clean out. There's nothing there. And I said to him, well, so what do you do there? And he says, the only solution I have is medication. I don't want people to, to jump down and sit beside you. You know, sometimes we, in pastoral care, we say, let's sit beside this person. He said, I don't want people to just jump into the pit and sit with me. I want to get out of that pit. And the only way that I can get out of that pit is through medication. And he says, my spirituality, if you think about spirituality like a wall, he says, uh, all Christians are, are using their spiritual gifts and spiritual practices to get up this wall. I can't get up this wall. If I have medication, it helps me to get up the wall and to get that place where I can re-engage with, uh, with Jesus in that way. Um, and so in that context, his spirituality, his, sorry, his medication has a spiritual function. It reconnects him to that which he cannot reconnect with on his own. Now, if we take that idea uh, and can I shift it over into palliative care, for example. In palliative care, one of the, uh, uh, I'll show you the connection will be clear in a minute. Palliative care, one of the things that is most difficult is pain control. Right, so pain control is, 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 is a very, very important thing. So what does pain do? Pain isolates you from yourself, from your neighbor, and from your community, and ultimately from God. So by giving pain medication, you reconnect people to themselves, to their neighbor, to the community, and to God. And so the simple act of giving uh, medication in, a, in the life care situation is actually ultimately a spiritual act or a spiritual practice. Likewise, for a mental health situation like the one I've described to you, it's a spiritual practice. So the idea that you, know, you shouldn't take your medication because it's not spiritual just actually doesn't make any sense because psychopharmacology properly and faithfully used can be a spiritual practice that takes us to spiritual ends. And so it's just too too simplistic to say you haven't got enough faith or you haven't got, or you, you ha you've done this or the next thing. It just doesn't make any sense. If you think a bit more fully about it, you can actually see there's a fascinating connection between standard medical practices and spiritual practices.
Once again, it's good that you're here and that you're here, and I'm glad that all of us exist. Absolutely. Thank you all. Thank you, Christy and everyone. John will be out front to greet you and answer more of your questions. We'll see you in about a year. Well, I hope sooner. Thank you all.